Today we are continuing our study in the book of Acts and we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 10. Let's pray and then we'll dive into this. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, so much for your word. And we want to invite you today by your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to do a work inside of us, Lord, that that we would leave this place different from the way that we came in. And just as the rain is coming down outside, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would just rain down upon us in this place today, in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. You know, I came to Christ in 1973 and started attending Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in 1974, right in the midst of a revival that has come to be known as the Jesus People Movement. And in 1974, we were about six years into that revival that started in 1968, and it was an incredible time. It lasted another about eight years, and during that time, I mean, the church was just packed with people, young people, old people, people were getting saved, and it wasn't just at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, it was happening all over Southern California. It was an incredible move of God. I like what Henry Blackaby said about revival when he said this, revival is when God's people return to God, and God returns to them, and everyone sees the difference. And that's exactly what was happening during that time. Culture was changing, people were changing, and the world around us was taking notice. Time Magazine did a cover story. The news uh, reports were, were many about what was happening in Southern California at that particular time. And that Jesus People Movement revival didn't just stay there in Southern California. It's, it spread all over over the United States and into different parts of the world. And in our Calvary Chapel movement, over 2,000 churches were planted. It was an incredible move of God. But here's what I want you to know. What God did there didn't happen as a result of some strategic plan of man. No, it was a sovereign work of God. God pouring out his spirit. I like what um, one of Pastor Chuck Smith's favorite Bible commentators, G. Campbell Morgan, said about revival. He said this, We cannot organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. Well, here in Acts chapter 10, we see what it looks like for us to set our sails in a way to catch the wind as God would seek to move and blow upon his people once again. We noted in verses 1 to 23 last week in chapter 10 that chapter 10 is a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts. And we noted that that chapter 10 puts us at about the 10-year mark in the life of the early church. That we are 10 years from when the, the Lord poured out his spirit there on the day of Pentecost and when the church was born. And in that 10-year span, we have seen God. God do this radical work in the city of Jerusalem where upwards of 10,000 people have come to faith in Christ. And we've also seen that in spite of the 
persecution that came against the church, that the gospel and the message of Jesus continued to go all throughout the Jewish world and even down into the city of Samaria. But the reason why chapter 10 is a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts, as it it really serves as the pivot point in the story of the early church. Because what we see here in Acts chapter 10 is a fresh outpouring of God's spirit where the sails of the church catch this fresh move of the Holy Spirit. And it starts by God impacting this one particular Gentile family. But it spreads from there all throughout the Middle East, down into Europe, into Asia, and even into parts of Africa. In fact, all of us here today who are not Jewish, we can trace our roots and our faith to Jesus back to what happens here in Acts chapter 10. So today, I want us to look at, as we break through or break down the rest of this chapter, what I would call five marks that we see in this passage that can lead to revival. You know, it was Pastor Adrian Rogers who once said, if you study the history of revival, God has always sent revival in the darkest of days. And if you were with us on Wednesday night, Pastor Barry Stagner was here, and he did an amazing job at our June Prophecy Update in showing us and kind of outlining for us how we are living in the darkest of days, how we are primed right now for the coming of Jesus again for his church, but we are also primed for revival, Because revival has always broken out in the darkest of days. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for either one. Whatever God wants to do. If he wants to come or if he wants to bring a revival, I'm ready for both of those. Amen? Amen. So let's consider the five marks that can lead to revival that we see here in this chapter. The first thing I want you to note is that it was birthed in prayer. And if you study revival, you'll find that every revival that has ever occurred in the history of the church has been birthed in prayer. Back in the 80s, when, when I was following the Lord and, and in high school, one of my favorite Christian recording artists was a guy by the name of Steve Camp. And Steve Camp had this to say about revival. He said, prayer is the burden of revival. Repentance is the breakthrough of revival. Evangelism is the blessing of revival. And holiness is the bounty of revival. I love that. But prayer always starts with revival, with a group of people getting together and passionately seeking God. And we noted last week in verses 1 through 23 that there were two men that were praying. Two men that were 35 in cities, 35 miles from each other that were seeking God. The first guy we were, were introduced to in the beginning of the chapter, he was a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Because he is a Roman, that means he, he works for the bad guys. He was born and raised in a pagan and idolatrous society, but God had been doing something in his heart. God had been working in a way where Cornelius began to forsake the, the idols of Rome and he begins to seek Jehovah, the God of Israel. We're told in verse two, notice he's described as a devout man, one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to all people. He's a man who is seeking God, but get this, he doesn't know Jesus yet. 
But we're also told here is that he was a man of prayer. And so one day as he was praying, we saw this last week, he gets visited by an angel who tells him to send men to Joppa, 35 miles away from where he's living there in Caesarea, and that they're to go to Joppa and to seek out a man by the name of Simon, whose surname was Peter. And he says, ask him to come and he'll tell you what you need to do. And so that's exactly what he does. He sends these men down to Joppa to look for Simon Peter. Well, there in Joppa, 35 miles away, we have Peter. And Peter's also praying. It's lunchtime. He's on a roof and he's praying. He's seeking God. And he has this vision, this sheet coming down out of heaven like a a giant picnic blanket. And it's lunchtime and Peter's hungry. And there's all these animals and these creeping things and these birds of the air that are on this blanket. But the problem was, is they were all, they weren't kosher animals. They weren't the, the animals that in the Jewish diet that they were allowed to eat. But in this vision, Peter hears the Lord say, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter responds, no way, Lord. Not so. I'm not doing that. In fact, he even says, my lips have never, ever even touched something that was common or unclean, and I'm not going to start now. But then the Lord says to him in verse 15, notice verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again a second time and said, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. And it tells us in the text that this whole scenario, this vision, these words were repeated three times. And so the vision ends and Peter is pondering the meaning of what this is all about. And he's about to find out. And this is where we're going to pick it up in verse 17 today. It says, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry from Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and they asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while, while Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Note that phrase, doubting nothing. Here's what the Lord's telling Peter. Peter, don't overthink this. Don't think too hard about this. How many of you like to uh, tendency to overthink things? Okay, I, I, I do that. He's saying, don't, don't, don't overthink this, Peter. Just go. And what's going to happen as Peter is taking the step of faith to go with these men, the revelation of the vision is going to be revealed, listen, as he's on the way. And that's how often God, that's often how God works in our lives. We take a step of faith and we're, we're wanting, we, we want the direction we don't want God to lay everything out. He says, no, that's not the way it's going to work. Don't overthink this. Just take that step of faith. Just go. And it's going to be revealed to you on the way. That's what happens to Peter. Verse 21. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And then he invited them in and lodged them. And the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa 
accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea and now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his friends and close relatives. So we see the first thing, the first mark that can lead to revival is that that it's birthed in prayer. And both of these men are praying and seeking God. But the second mark that can lead to revival is this, is that there's an attitude of expectation that often precedes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice verse 24 again. It says that Cornelius was waiting for them. And the idea is that he's waiting eagerly with a sense of expectation, and excitement. He's invited all of his close friends and his relatives. And I want you to notice in verse 33 how Cornelius recaps what he did after the angel spoke to him. He says, so I sent to you immediately and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded by you. And church, I just want to say this. It's so important when we come together like this that we do so with an attitude of expectation. That we truly believe that that this book that we hold in our hands is indeed the word of God. And it's living and it's powerful and it has the, the ability to change and transform lives. And when we come together, we need to believe with a sense of eagerness that God is going to speak to us. It was Charles Spurgeon who said this, if we want revival, we must revive our hunger and reverence for the word of God. So we see here there there was an attitude of expectation and excitement that preceded this outpouring. Let's look at the next mark that can lead to revival that we see in this passage is that there is a spirit of humility. Notice verse 25. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand, I myself am also a man. Now don't miss the significance of this. Don't miss the significance of what Cornelius is, what he does here in bowing before Peter. We talked about this last week, that the Romans thought that they were the superior race. That all the other races were inferior to them and meant to serve them. And Cornelius has been placed there in Caesarea, there in Israel, by the emperor himself to make this point very clear that Jewish people are under the Romans, that they're subservient to the Romans. So for Cornelius, who is a Roman official, to bow before a Jewish man, that was a big deal. That was a mark of humility. I mean, it wasn't the right thing to do. He's bowing, worshiping, you know, Peter. But, but it shows the mark of humility, the humbleness in his heart that he, a Roman, would do that before a Jewish man. And meekness and humility are always trademarks of the work of God in the heart of a man. One of my wife's favorite authors, Nancy Lee DeMoss, said this, we will never meet God in revival until we have first met him in brokenness. And humility is born in brokenness. It's realizing that Jesus is greater than we are. It's realizing that Jesus is the king and not us. 
And it's coming to him with humble hearts. Now, now Peter handles this the right way. He, he pulls him up and says, hey, don't worship me. I, I'm a man just like you. And this is great because we see the humility in Peter's heart that Peter is refusing to take from man the glory that belongs to God alone. Guys, we need humble hearts in coming before the Lord. Both James and Peter would write this in their epistles that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I believe that the very fact that God ends up pouring out his spirit upon Cornelius and his family and those who are in the house was directly related to this attitude of expectation and this humbleness of heart that he showed. So after Peter lifts up Cornelius and says, hey, I'm a man just like you, we read in verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together, and then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with and go, or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent, sent for, I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? And so Cornelius said, well, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. In the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So I immediately, uh, immediately, I sent for you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. The fourth thing, if you're taking notes that we see here in this passage, the fourth mark that can often lead to revival is there has to be a willingness, hear me, there has to be a willingness to follow the Holy Spirit's leading, even though it goes against tradition. Notice in verse 28, Peter says, you guys know how unlawful it is for me to even be here. Unlawful it is for me to even step inside your house. By even being in the same room with Gentile people, Peter was breaking with years of tradition. He was going against 1,500 years of religious tradition that said the Jews don't eat with Gentiles. If a Gentile is walking down the same street as a Jew, the Jew would cross to the other side. That's how strongly they, they taught about this. And so entering the house of Cornelius went completely against what was the prevailing Jewish thought of the day. But Peter is being willing here to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. You see, Orthodox Jews were certain that God did show partiality, that he showed partiality towards the Jews, and he showed partiality against the Gentiles. 
They believed full-heartedly that God loved the Jews and hated the Gentiles. In fact, the rabbis would teach that the Gentiles were dogs, that they were unclean, and they were good for only one thing, and that was to fuel the fires of hell. So by entering the house of Cornelius, it proved that Peter's heart was being changed by God. It showed that he understood the vision that he received from heaven of the animals that really, this was the point that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, were all unclean. But we can be made clean through Jesus Christ. Through what Jesus would do. I love what John Stott said about this, this chapter and this particular point. He said, the principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius, but the conversion of Peter. I love that. And one of the marks that leads to revival is that there will be a willingness to break with tradition. Tradition says things like this. Well, we've, all, we've always done it that way. We can't change because we've always done it that way. You know what, guys? That's a sure way to quench the Holy Spirit. When we say, oh, well, we've always done it that way. Listen, listen to me. The message of the gospel, of the truth of Jesus Christ, the message never changes. But our methods have to change. They have to change as the generations change. They have to change depending upon where God puts us and who we are ministering to. Yeah, the the message doesn't change with the message, the methods, they have to change. And here we see that Peter, he's, he's open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, breaking with tradition. He's, he's breaking through, God, and in doing so, God's moving and working to break through 1,500 years of racial tension and social barriers by pouring his spirit out upon the Gentiles. You know, man looks at color and ethnicity. Man looks at nationality and political affiliation. Man looks at social and economic status. But you know what God looks at? The heart. Remember when he sent Samuel to go to pick a a king from the sons of Jesse? And Jesse lines up his boys. And the first one is Eliab. He's the firstborn, tall, big, strapping guy. Samuel takes one look at him and goes, great choice, God. This guy will make a great king. Remember what God says? Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance. That's what man does. But I look at the heart. I'm focused on the heart. That's what I'm concerned about. You see, listen, church. God doesn't see color or ethnicity. He only sees the heart. God doesn't see nationality or political affiliation. He only sees the heart. God doesn't see social or economic status. He only sees the heart. He sees the heart that stands in awe of him, that fears him, the heart that realizes that Jesus is king and I need him to be my savior. Well, at this point, Peter begins to preach. Look at verse 34. And what he does here in his sermon is he exalts the centrality of Christ. And this is the fifth mark that can lead to revival is that the focus of our preaching is always on Jesus. 
It's not on issues. It's not on reform. It's not on politics. The focus is on Jesus. And the focal point of Peter's sermon is the exaltation of Jesus. Let's, let's read here beginning in verse 34. It says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism of John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Verse 39. And we are witnesses of all these things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree. But him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it was he who was ordained by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So in this sermon, Peter, what does he do? He exalts the person of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see, I just want to quickly kind of break this down and see six ways that he exalts Jesus in this passage. The first thing that we see is he exalts Jesus as the bringer of peace there in verse 36. That Peter lifts up Jesus as the one that God sent to bring peace with his rebellious creation. You know, there is a lack of peace in the heart of every single person that doesn't know Christ. For those of you who are believers, you remember what that felt like, don't you? Well, there was that void. There was that lack of peace. There was that sense of of just knowing that, that something is wrong. And the Bible tells us that our sin separates us from God. And that separation causes, it creates this tension within inside of us. Think of it this way. Next month, my wife and I will have been married for 37 years. Yes, praise the Lord. She's been putting up with me for 37 years. And in our 37 years of marriage, there have been some times when I have done something or I have said something that has hurt my wife. I know that's shocking to you that your pastor would do that, but in reality, we're people just like you. And whenever that happens, there is a tension and uneasiness that gets created in the house. And it needs to be fixed. And the only way for it to be fixed is for Denise to admit that she was wrong. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. The only way for it to get fixed is I have to admit that I was an idiot. I have to come to her and say, babe, I'm so sorry. I was so stubborn. I was so prideful. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Will you forgive me? And she does. And suddenly there's peace and there's harmony again 
You get that because that happens in your house as well. Well, What's interesting as it relates to God and our relationship to God is God wasn't the offending party. But God, who wasn't the offending part, he was the one that was offended by our rebelliousness. He took the initiative to come and make peace by sending his son Jesus on a rescue mission to come and seek out rebellious mankind and to say, hey, I love you and I want to have a relationship with you, but your sin has caused a wedge between us. So this is what's going to happen. My son's going to go to the cross and he's going to die on the cross to pay the price for your sins. And if you put your faith and trust in him, the door is going to open where you and I can be at peace once again. And when you do that and you open up your heart to Jesus, suddenly you experience peace with God. And as a result of that, you experience peace within. Peace within your own heart. Can I get an amen to that? How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you have experienced that before? Well, that's what Peter does. He exalts Jesus as the bringer of peace. Secondly, he exalts Jesus as the Lord of all. That's who Jesus was. That's who he is. The Lord of all, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. But this was a huge statement to make to a Roman centurion. Because in the Roman Empire, it was expected that all people would declare openly that Caesar was Lord. So in that one statement, Peter is going and really challenging the popular opinion of the day that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord of all, that he's the king, that he's the true emperor. And so he makes this statement that really flies in the face of all that Rome stood for. In fact, in the years that would follow, Tens of thousands of Christians would be martyred for their faith because they refused to believe and to say and declare that Caesar was Lord. So he exalts Jesus. This is the second thing we see as the Lord of all. The third way that Peter exalts Jesus is that he was anointed by the Spirit with power there in verse 38. That Jesus was anointed by God and given power over Satan and over the demons. That he was given power to heal. And that word to, to heal means to cure, to heal, to restore. But I want you to notice who are the objects of this healing. He, he identifies them there as those who were oppressed by the devil. That word to be oppressed speaks to be pressed down, to overpower, to burden with unreasonable impositions. You know, that's what Jesus, or excuse me, that's what Satan does in the life of a person. That's what he was doing in Peter's day. That's what he's doing to men and women in our day, to teenagers, to young kids. He's oppressing them. He's burdening. He's weighing them down where people today, they feel overwhelmed by life. They're afraid to live. You've heard of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. People, that's a real thing. People afraid to live and people are afraid to die and they're overwhelmed by, by their sin and their guilt. But Jesus came and possessed the power to set people free from that oppression, 
from the weight of sin, from the weight of guilt. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 10, Satan is a thief and a robber who comes to kill, to rob, and destroy. That's his MO. But I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. Jesus came to bring healing to those who are oppressed. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to open up your heart so that he can release that oppression in your life today. Now, it's interesting because Peter says of Jesus that he went about doing good, that it was evident that God was with him. But then he says, but the Jewish leaders killed him. And you read that, and I bet you Cornelius and his friends are wondering, like, why would they do that? Why would they respond that way? If it was evident that Jesus was was from God, well, here's the reason why. We're told over and over in the Gospels that the problem that the religious leaders had with Jesus was was really threefold. Number one, that Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh, and that bothered them. Because in their mind, that was blasphemy. Number two, they were jealous of his popularity, that the people were drawn to him more than them. And number three, Jesus was constantly challenging their traditions and their rituals. And so Peter says they killed him. And I wonder if when he said that, there was a gasp in the room. But Peter doesn't let that lay there very long because the fourth thing, the fourth way that he exalts Jesus in verses 40 and 41 is he tells us that God raised him from the dead. Our religious leaders killed him, but God raised him up, that he's risen and he's alive. As I like to say, Jesus beat death, so death would not have to beat us. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything that we believe hinges on that. That Jesus is risen, that he's alive. Peter would go on to write in his epistle that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again, that's what happens in the heart of a person that opens up their heart to Jesus. They, they are born again, they're born anew because the Bible says that in our sin that we are dead separated from God. But when a person embraces what Jesus did for them on the cross, they are born again. Their spirit comes to life. And Peter says, we've been born again to this living hope. We have hope in the present because we know that our sins have been forgiven and forgotten. Our guilt has been removed and we have hope for the future in knowing that that we're going to live in heaven, that heaven is waiting for us. That our destiny is to live forever with Jesus in his kingdom. And so Peter exalts Jesus as the risen one. The fifth way that Peter exalts Jesus is by declaring in verse 42 that Jesus is the king and the final judge of all people. Notice verse 42 again. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. The Bible says that it's been appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes the judgment. You die and you stand before God. Now listen, the judgment is not going to be based upon, the criteria for the judgment is not going to be on how good you were versus how bad you were. If that was the case, Cornelius would have passed with flying colors. He was a good man. 
He was a generous man. He gave to the poor. He was a religious man. He prayed and he sought after God. But get this, Cornelius didn't know Jesus. And because of that, Cornelius was still lost. You see, this is the judgment. The judgment, when we stand before God, this is the question that will be asked, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus? Did you believe in him? Did you embrace him? Did you receive him as your Lord and Savior? Or did you reject him? Those are the only two options. When it comes to Jesus, understand this. There is no neutral ground. Jesus made that very clear when he said, you are either for me or you are against me. So Jesus exalts, or Peter exalts Jesus as the final judge, the one that that all mankind will stand before. But the sixth thing that we see here is that he also exalts him as the source of God's forgiveness. Look at verse 43. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Listen, before you meet Jesus as judge, you can meet him this morning as the forgiver of sins. As the one who brings peace between you and God. As the one who forgives your sin and he forgets your sin. And in Jesus, you're made a new creation where Paul said, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And if you'll open your heart to Jesus today and embrace what he's done for you, that's what God's going to do in your life. You'll receive his peace. You'll receive his forgiveness. You can have a fresh start even today. And you know what's wild to me in this story is that Peter doesn't even get to finish his sermon. He doesn't even get to the altar call. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. God pours out his spirit and he moves. And this is why I want to finish up this morning by having us note four things that we see here that were the result of what takes place. Four things that was the result of of them putting themselves in this place and these marks that can lead to revival. Four things that we see that were the result of that. And the first is that the Holy Spirit is poured out. These Gentiles in that house of Cornelius received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Peter will point out in this chapter as well as in chapter 11 that what happened to us on the day of Pentecost is exactly what happened to them. That the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to happen to to us in Jerusalem is exactly what happened to these Gentiles in Caesarea. And it would sweep all over the Gentile world. In fact, the rest of the book of Acts has its roots here in Acts chapter 10. So that's the first thing we see. The second result is that the believers were astonished. Look at verse 45. 
And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered, can anyone forbid that these should be not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So true conversion happens here to Cornelius and everyone in his house after they hear the gospel. And they, get, they believe in Jesus. They get baptized with the Holy Spirit all at the same time. And the believers, the Jewish believers that were there, they were astonished. That word astonished means to displace, to amaze, and to throw into wonder. Today we would say they were tripping. They're just freaking out. They're like, can you believe this? Look, the same thing happened to us. It's happening to them. How cool is that? So the believers were astonished that God was working. And the next result we see is that there's a hunger for more. Look at verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. The spirit's being poured out and they're like, man, we want more of this. Can, can you just stay? Would you not go? It's what we saw several months ago in, in Asbury, you know, there at that, that Christian or that college where God poured out his spirit. And it went on for days and it went on for weeks and they just wanted more and they didn't want to stop. And because of all the craziness and people coming from all over and the traffic jam, the school officials said, okay, we, we got to put a stop to this. I remember during the Jesus People movement that on Sunday nights, get this, Pastor Chuck would teach for three hours. Can you imagine that? Three hours. People were just so hungry, just like hanging on every word, like just more, just more. It wasn't until the children's ministry people had to come and go, Pastor Chuck, can you at least cut it down to two because we can't handle all these kids for that long. God was moving and God was working. There's a heart that says, man, we want more. Don't stop. But there's one more result that I want us to see. And this we see in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, we see that there's opposition from the traditionalists. Look at verse 1. It says, now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended. Everybody say contended. Contended. That means that they came against him. They criticized him. They contended with him saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. What were you thinking, Peter? This is the idea. And in verses 4 through 14, we're not going to read it all. Peter recaps what happened. He talks about the vision and the animals that he saw and how God said kill and eat and and, and how he said, God, I'm not doing that. I've never, nothing unclean has never touched my mouth. And, but then God said to him, don't call what is common, you know, uh, don't, don't call what is common or unclean. What, what I say is clean. And God told him, go with these men that are coming. And so Peter talks about how he takes six of the brethren with him. And I want to pick up what he says here in verse um, 15. He talks about when he gets to the house of Cornelius, he says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. 
And then I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Who am I to say that this isn't a work of God? And then it says this, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, I want you to catch this. These men who here at first were saying, Peter, what were you thinking? Peter, what were you doing? You know it's unlawful for you to go in and eat with Gentiles. Suddenly when they hear the testimony of the word of God, they come around and they're like, okay, this is obviously what God is doing. This is a fresh work of God. But we'll see later in the book of Acts that that wasn't the case with all of the Jewish believers. That some of them stay stuck in their traditionalism and the traditionalists would become the legalists. And they would be the ones that would come along and say to the Gentiles, if you guys really want to be saved, then you need to become Jews. You need to be circumcised. You need to embrace Judaism. And this would begin to be the conflict that would happen in the book of Acts that really comes to a head in Acts chapter 15. And we'll we'll, we'll get there in a while. These guys, these traditionalists that become legalists, end up seeking to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. I pray that that would not be the case with us. As we close today, church, I I pray that we would be men and women of prayer, passionately seeking after God. That we would be a church and people who, of humility, constantly expressing our need for more of God in our lives, more of God in our church. That the attitude of our hearts would be, Jesus, we can't do this life without you. I pray when we come together, there would be a sense of of expectation and eagerness as we worship and pray and seek the Lord together. And I pray that we would always stay open to the fresh ways that God would move by his spirit in our midst. And I'm not talking about weirdness. I'm talking about things that line up with what's in the Bible. That we would never be, well, that's just, the, that's just what we always have done. But we would be a group of people that say, God, we want to set our sails in a way that we might be able to catch a fresh wind from your spirit as you would seek to blow on us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, that you bring revival into places and into hearts by your sovereign spirit. And Lord, I pray today for anybody here in our midst that hasn't opened up their heart to Jesus, hasn't embraced Jesus, that doesn't know the peace 
that comes from having your sins forgiven and your guilt removed and being put in, in right relationship with God. Lord, I pray today that they, by their spirit, but th- that they, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, just speaking to, to their hearts, that they would open their hearts even right now. 